Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And I should say congratulations, Kobus. Uh, you know, we are just humbled, honored, a little bit freaked out that uh, the folks over at Danway, uh, Danway, if you're not familiar, is the Financial Times, the FT's China media research arm, and it goes way back. I mean, and it has just got street cred up the yin-yang uh, in China. And they were uh, very kind to nominate us or to award us or to name us as the uh, model worker uh, of the year 2014 for podcasts, uh, for China podcasts. And so, Kobus, this little thing that we do is being heard all the way over in the Middle Kingdom. It's amazing. I was completely blown away. I, you know, kind of I sent you an email with the subject heading was just like, OMG, OMG, OMG. <laughs> it really was. And I was like, oh, my Lord. So thank you to the good <laughs> folks over at Danway. Thank you, of course, to all of our listeners, to all of you who listen uh, quite regularly. We really appreciate it. It's really a pleasure to do this every week. And uh, it's, you know, we get a nice little recognition on uh, on the on the Internet. But that really coming from Danway and coming from the likes of Jeremy Goldcorn over there and, and his team, uh, it's an honor. So, okay, we got that out of the way. Uh, we're going to talk today about uh, Jakaya Kikwete. And if you're not familiar with President Kikwete, he is the uh, leader of Tanzania. And he just came back from uh, a week in China. And his bags were packed. You know, he's what, you know I went up to, uh, to, 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 to Hong Kong last week, or this week, actually. And living in Vietnam, we don't have a lot of things here. We don't have Ikea. We don't have the big stores. So I literally bring an empty suitcase that I go and load up on things. And I come back completely loaded. And you see at the airport, everybody's doing the same thing, coming back on the flight to, uh, to Vietnam. Lo and behold, President Kikwete did something kind of similar where he went empty-handed and came back with a whole lot of baggage. $1.7 billion in investment uh, to be, uh, or deals and investment deals. So he did a little bit of what I did going up to Hong Kong. Uh, and so we're going to talk about uh, Kikwete's visit and also why is Tanzania getting all the love? Um, so let's get into it very quickly. Uh, Kobus, why don't you just kind of set the stage for us about this visit and, and kind of the, 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 the tone and the overall feel of it and what happened. It was a very friendly visit. Kind of, um, you know, the, the it was in both sides, both in Tanzania and in China. I think it was generally seen as a very, very amenable occasion. Um, and the deals were really amazing. It's it's one point seven billion dollars of of total deals, including what, the one that that really surprised me was an entire new city that's being built uh, outside of Dar es Salaam, in Ovumba. which is going to be. Sorry, it's in Avumba. It's a city. It's a kind of a yes. suburb of Dar. Yes, yes, um, and it's going to be essentially a self-contained logistics hub. Um, you know, kind of with its own systems, own traffic systems, water systems, everything. Um, and you know, kind of in addition to that, there's there's a bunch of other deals, including a, a deep water port um, for uh, for Bagamoyo north of Dar es Salaam, um, which is going to be one of one of East Africa's major ports. So it was really an eye-popping collection of deals. So in addition to the Uvumbu and the Bagamoyo. Port, Port, uh, there's also $85 million in zero interest loans. Now, that's an interesting, an interesting shift. And I'd be, this is something to keep an eye on. You know, China's coming under a lot of criticism by Howard French and a number of other analysts that they're loading up African states with these loans. And low interest, be they may, 
there's still interest. So the fact that the Chinese gave out $85 million in zero interest loans, I thought that was an interesting thing. Also, they've signed deals for rural electrification uh, with the the Tanzanian state power company, Tanesco. So again, more in the power sector. This Avumba deal, which you you kind of highlighted, I think is very interesting. And and for those of you not familiar uh, with China and even to some extent Taiwanese property development, um, this is actually something that they do quite a bit in China. Uh, if, for example, Kobus, here in Ho Chi Minh City where I live, uh, I live effectively in a self-contained city that has its own schools, its own hospitals, its own power station, uh, and its own roads. And so this model that they have, um, that the, and they do this in China quite a bit now. This is a new kind of development model. Um, they're just exporting it now. So it wouldn't surprise me to see that what happens in Ovumba might be replicated in other parts of Africa. So again, it's another kind of leading indicator to keep an eye on. I think it's already being replicated in other parts of Africa. There's plans to build a, a similar city like that in in Johannesburg. Um, and there's another one, another um, planned city that's apparently going up in Addis Ababa at, at, at some stage. I don't know whether the, the financing for that has been decided yet. But the, the, the one, that the, the property in Johannesburg has apparently already been bought. Um, and it's it's moving ahead, apparently. Well, it so makes, it's, it's really amazing. It yeah. is amazing. And it makes sense in some ways. And again, I just look at my own experience. Of, of living here in Ho Chi Minh City, where you know the, the, the area that I live, because it's got its own power, uh, it's not cut off. There's brownouts for much of the day in parts of Ho Chi Minh City, uh, depending on where you live and depending on the time of year. So, for example, at the end of the rainy season, when the rivers are low, uh, the hydroelectric jams don't run as, 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 as much. Um, the rest of the city has to suffer with brownouts. Here, where in this community where I live, uh, where it's a natural gas uh, uh, turbine that um, natural gas powered turbine that produces electricity, we don't get the brownouts in the same way. So it allows for business continuity, and I think that's a very interesting thing because in Africa, uh, where I lived in Kinshasa, certainly parts of Tanzania where power is a big problem, by creating a zone. Uh, that is independent of the rest of the country may seem unfair to some, but at the same time, it also may lead to economic growth if business can operate there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to compare it to the special economic zone model, which obviously is is directly you know kind of aimed at at big companies and manufacturing, and the you know it's 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 an interesting kind of shift from that model to also then include things like schools and and residences and universities in some cases, um, you know so it's it's almost like you know kind of it's it's not only the the companies themselves but also the kind of class of citizens that run those companies that are kind of getting these kind of special amenities and kind of kept outside of the rest of the city. Mm-hmm. I can well imagine in Johannesburg that coming in for a lot of criticism. Uh, but, you know, it, it might work. It might work. Well, let's keep going on with the, the Sino-Tanzanian relationship. Uh, throughout all of this, it, you know, Kikwete's visit highlighted the relationship and the growing relationship. Remember that Tanzania was the on the agenda, on the itinerary of Xi Jinping when he made his first trip to Africa two years ago. Uh, and again, it brought up the attention of why. It's the same place that Obama, so Tanzania got Xi and Obama in the same year. And I don't think there's many countries that can actually uh, claim credit for that. And it comes down to the fact that Tanzania is sitting on 53.2 trillion cubic feet of recoverable natural gas. It's got between 1.5 and 2 billion barrels of commercially viable oil, uh, or, or, you know, near the border with Uganda. And uh, so there's, there's natural gas and there's oil in that space. And that is the reason why everybody thinks that Kikwete is getting such, 
you know, the red carpet treatment from both Obama and Xi. Is your suspicion that the Chinese were being so generous simply because of the natural gas reserves that are there? Not simply because of the natural gas, although I, I think it certainly helped. I think it was. It also has to do with the, the Tanzania's um, and East Africa's emerging position as a kind of a new general development hub. Um, I think that's really where the where the economic action is going to be over the next twenty years in Africa. Um, the the there's a bunch of East African countries that are integrating, um, and that that integration is facing some problems, um, especially the rail integration. Is is that that a very very controversial and difficult process, but they, they, you know, kind of, they are integrating. They per, they're perfectly positioned to serve both um, the Arab world and India to connect with with banking hubs in Mauritius. Um, you know that the the Indian Ocean um, community is becoming very very sexy in the southern hemisphere. Mm. So I think all of that it works together. That with the gas and oil, it's all working together to to just make it you know seem like the perfect place to to invest in. Well, how important do you? think is the fact that Tanzania is one of the most stable governments and stable societies in, in Africa, particularly in Eastern Africa, where, you know, you know, they've, the, the Chinese we have had frustrations and second kind of guessing themselves in Sudan, South Sudan, certainly even in, in the Congo, where it's very, very difficult to do business. And even the cost of doing business in Angola is going up so much. But at the same time, uh, Tanzania stands there as a, really a model in some ways of stability, social stability at least. I, I, I definitely think so. And I think also in East Africa, it's actually, you know, kind of, it's it's also a model of stability because, um, you know, kind of the Kenya is, very, is obviously very stable, but at the same time, there is the issues around the, you know, the the riots a few years ago. Um, there is worries about terrorism. Um, you know, Sudan is, is very difficult. Somalia is very difficult. Um, Uganda has its own issues. You know, kind of, it, it, um, a, lot of a lot of weird uh, logistical and, and business problems um, with Chinese companies in Uganda, so I think in in that whole um, that whole area, um, you know, Tanzania is is both uh, the most stable and you know kind of already developed and the most easy to develop further. I think you know kind of Mozambique is probably also coming up, but Mozambique is uh, has been has been so damaged by civil war for so long that there's a lot more work to be done before it really functions. Um, so I think Tanzania is, is absolutely the perfect place to, to start for them. I think it's the easiest place to start. Let's take a look at the balance of trade right now. China exports about $1.1 billion worth of goods every year to Tanzania. Uh, China or Tanzania now exports about $500 million to, to China. So there's a two to one difference there. You know, again, I keep coming back to Jacob Zuma's comments about the balance of trade not being sustainable. Um, and, and clearly it's in China's favor right now. One has to think, though, that if that natural gas is extracted out of the ocean uh, and starts being shipped off to China, that the balance of trade could shift significantly into Tanzania's favor. So I guess when you look at the, at the, at the macro, are you concerned right now about the imbalance, the two-to-one imbalance that exists now? Or do you kind of see that leveling out as natural resources come, uh, come out of the earth? I am. I, I think it will probably level out. Um, what I'm, you know, kind of. It, it depends on how how Tanzania plays it. Um, you know, kind of. Some some African countries have been more canny than others. You know, kind of. Um, so, for example, I think um, Mozambique has been an interesting example with its natural gas in the sense that it it um, its investors are kind of in a bunch of different regions. Um, you know, kind of. So there's a they're kind of playing off about 
bunch of regions against each other while maintaining e- East Asia as its main client for natural gas. So it'll be very interesting to see, um, you know, the the role that Chinese companies are playing in in, in the extraction of this natural gas in Tanzania. Um, you know, kind of whether they're following the same the same model or going for a more you know kind of more focused on China kind of model. Um, the I, I think it's it's very it's it's too um, Tanzania's kind of long term benefit to position itself as a kind of a regional hub um, serving a bunch of different constituents of which China is a major one rather than linking itself too closely to China Be- you know um, because I mean there's India as well and, and you know that's sub region okay, so they, they, they need to keep it to, to diversify you've brought up a very good point here although this is the China in Africa podcast sometimes you and I can overemphasize China because that's the subject of our podcast but I think you bring up a, a really good point here which is that the Tanzanian government has done such a good job, and I'm not sure if it's Kikwete or it's other people in his administration, at making sure that they are not, you know, tied to the hip of China. And that's, again, they have a very close relationship with the Americans. Uh, The Indians, traditionally, that's considered a a sphere of influence uh, for the Indians. I mean, East Africa has traditionally been where there's been a large East uh, Indian population. And Tanzania has done a lot to to develop relationships with the subcontinent as well. So I think it's interesting how Kikwete is probably doing a better job than almost any African leader that I've seen at laying his cards out equally across the great powers and not really looking to show that he's being partisan to one over the other. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think for increasingly in Africa, that's that's going to become a, a very valuable skill um, is to not only not even play them off against each other, but just to maintain relationships with all of them, um, you know, kind of and, and to position oneself in in the minds of a bunch of different economic subregions. I think that's really important, especially as traditional Western powers find it harder to kind of to, to jump back into into complete profitability. I mean, you know, kind of the economies just don't, they're, they're really not getting back up, you know, kind of very quickly anyway, you know, kind of, so it's really important to to play, you know, kind of both Southern Asia, East Asia and Western Asia, I think at the, all at the same time, I think. So last year, no, it was earlier this year, actually, uh, a Chinese, the China's most sophisticated uh, PLA Navy, that's the plan, the People's Liberation Army Navy fleet. I did a tour of, of, of Southern Africa. I don't think it, the, the fleet made a stop in Tanzania, but it's one of the areas that I think we're going to see more presence of the Chinese Navy as it expands to really to become a blue water fleet. And this is going to be one of the flashpoints, as you talked about, with the Indians. So India right now, especially under the Modi government, is trying to step up its challenge with the Chinese. Now, at the same time, Sino-Indian relations have advanced. There, you know, remember this is a; these two countries have fought uh, aggressively over the, in the 20th century over their border. It's still a disputed border. Xi and Modi had a meeting earlier this year, where actually just uh, about six weeks ago, where they started to come to some resolution of the uh, of the border issues. But at the same time, the Indians are selling uh, naval uh, f- naval frigates now to the to the, to Vietnam as a as a buffer against China, uh, and also they are expanding their Indian Ocean fleet with uh, submarines and uh, a surface um, surface warships in order to, to challenge the Chinese there. And I would see at the other end of the Indian Ocean that Tanzania may actually find itself uh, being a contested player in that space as well. So that's something to look at. Speaking of Chinese foreign policy, I just spent the week in Hong Kong. And what's amazing is thinking about Sino-Tanzanian relations and thinking about Kikwete's visit to Beijing and how he was just greeted with smiles. He got 
Li Keqiang, the prime minister. He was he had dinner with Xi Jinping. He's just the red carpets rolling up and down Chang'an Avenue and on Tiananmen Square. And you think, wow, what a great, great bunch of people the Chinese are who roll this, you know, roll out the red carpet, give the toast the champagne. And then in Asia, you're a, you're a Japan specialist. You know, try telling that to somebody in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in Japan, uh, how aggressive, or here in Vietnam, the Chinese are in their own backyard. And I'm not sure that people in Africa who don't follow Chinese foreign policy are really that aware that China is a, such a multifaceted kind of hydra-headed, you know, I don't want to say monster because that's the wrong way, but it's just this different personality, schizophrenic in some respects, in how it deals with different parts of the world. It's just, it's jarring to see the, the contrast. I was wondering whether it's there was some kind of they were taking a, a page from the U.S. book in that sense, you know, kind of in in the sense that the U.S. was a much harder hegemon um, in Latin America and in South America during during a you know much of the Cold War than it might, than it was in some other parts, you know, kind of there was a, there was a lot of of um, public diplomacy um, and cultural diplomacy being being directed towards Europe and towards you know kind of a lot of other allies, whereas in in, in Latin America, the U.S. was really, you know, kind of frequently sending in the CIA. Am I oversimplifying that, or you know, do you, do you think the Chinese might have been influenced by that, by you know, kind of dealing differently with your own backyard, i.e., Asia, than the rest of the world? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, uh, you know, all of our Chinese listeners right now recoiling with uh, with horror, shock, <laughs> and disgust of your comparison to, uh, to to their to their what they consider to be, you know, their kind of small ring of influence versus the the Monroe Doctrine in, in in the Western Hemisphere, but you you do make a good point. You, yes, I you know, but you you know, on one level, you you make an excellent point, which is you know again how they treat their backyard is different than how they they you know they they look at the rest of the world. One very important point to understand about Chinese foreign policy is that the periphery of the country is considered to be among the most important priorities, and that goes back centuries, thousands of years, because the Empire of China. China under the, in the imperial period expanded or contracted depending on the strength of the periphery. So if the emperor could control the far reaches of the empire, then he was strong and he had the mandate of heaven. But if the far reaches of the empire, places like, you know, modern day Tibet, Xinjiang, today what's Taiwan, uh, if those break away, then the center doesn't hold and the empire falls and the emperor falls. So it, deeply rooted inside the Chinese political DNA is that fear of the periphery breaking away. And so that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this really hard edge approach to Hong Kong. Even now, just this week towards Taiwan, the Chinese have issued uh, some very, very tough messages. She is probably the strongest Chinese leader that we've had in a generation since Mao or maybe Deng. Uh, and so the periphery is really much the focus. In terms of the South China Sea, now this is where your comparison comes into it. We veered off into Chinese foreign politics and away from Africa here a little bit. But here's where the comparisons to, to, to the Western Hemisphere come in. The, the United States became the global power that it is in the 20th century or the, it was in the 20th century because it gained control of the Caribbean and pushed the British out. One of the theories right now is that the Chinese want to push the Americans out of the South China Sea. And if they can get full control of the South China Sea, where something like 40% of all global trade passes through, then this will launch them on their century of, uh, of, of becoming the hegemonic power of the world. That is the, the thinking in the minds of the Chinese. In the context of Africa, 
it's this, again, you and I have talked about this, this humility that they express that, you know, Li Keqiang says, we're learning, we've had some mistakes, you know, they'll, 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 they'll say those things. They would never say that to the Japanese. Can you imagine, Kobus, them saying we've made some mistakes in our policy with the Japanese with Tokyo? I mean, inconceivable. Yeah, no. So it's just, I, I yeah. mean, I, I just, I, putting, putting Africa in the broader context of China's global policy is, I think, a fascinating discussion to have. And it's some, we really need to get a Chinese foreign policy expert on who can kind of explain how the pieces fit together, if in fact they do. Yes, I mean, the, what, what I, what I, my, my, my intuition is that part of part of this of this pattern indicates the relative unimportance of Africa in in the larger scheme of things in in, in China's you know kind of China's um, arithmetic about about its position in the world. It can afford to be very very conciliatory and to do this kind of charm offensive. Um, in Africa, because there's really nothing to lose there, in a way, you know, kind of they, they they're not gonna, you know, they they won't, they know, I think that there isn't much to gain through hard power, um, and there's everything to gain through soft power, so that's fine. I think, you know, kind of the because essentially China hasn't doesn't have that much skin in the game, um, in in Africa, um, whereas in in East Asia it's up against the the, the hegemony of Japan, it's you know kind of it, it's it's dealing with its own borders, so it becomes. It's much more central to its own its own position in the world. It's I a, think that's an excellent um, point. Yeah. I mean, really, you've made an excellent. It's kind of a little bit like why the Chinese are so nice to Liechtenstein. I mean, the probably Sino-Liechtensteinian exactly, exactly. relationship yeah, like this not, is great. Kind of it's, yeah, probably yeah. Liechtenstein, by the way, may have more skin in the game with the Chinese than most African states, just because of its hub as a banking center where you can hide your money. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> given the corruption problems that the Chinese have had over the years, Liechtenstein is probably more important than we think. That said, um, yeah, so Kikwete, he's benefiting from all of this, and he seems to be playing the game extremely well. Uh, he, in some ways, is representing a model for a new African leader who, as you pointed out rightly, uh, is, is putting chips across the board. Uh, you know, he's putting red on black, black on red, and he's really doing – seems to be a very effective job at extracting – concessions out of the Americans, Europeans, and Chinese more effectively than uh, than almost any other state that we've seen. Certainly, East Africa will be the beneficiary of this with, again, new electrification, new ports, new zero-interest loans, and even a new city in Avumba outside of Dar es Salaam. So, uh, Kobus, you and I could go on for a long time about this. Uh, we will get a, a guest to talk about Chinese foreign policy, and, and this is something that we've talked to Ross Anthony of your former uh, institution at the Center for Chinese Studies, where we want to bring more of the Chinese worldview and Chinese foreign policy view and kind of, again, back Africa into it uh, so that people can kind of understand the bigger picture. Because to many Africans, as you pointed out, uh, China seems like, you know, it treats Africa as hugely important, when in fact, it's really in single digits in its overall trade. It's not that important compared to the US, Europe, the Middle East, uh, and certainly South Asia. So, not yeah, that it's Africa, growing importance. It's, it's massive. Yeah, it's massive. massively important. But that's why we want to try um, and put it in yeah. context and really yeah. for both sides here. So, um, well, that'll do it for this edition of the show. Uh, Kobus, what's the best way for people to follow you and stay in touch with what we're doing over at the China Africa Project? 
you'll see me on our Facebook page that is facebook.com slash China Africa Project um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E and you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R I'm tweeting the top China in Africa headlines almost every day and if you want to follow this podcast we really recommend that you check out the China File website uh, that is put on by the Asia Society in New York, and it really is one of the world's best resources for Chinese politics uh, around the world. And they are so gracious to be able to host our podcast, along with the folks uh, from Seneca, Jeremy Goldcorn and Kaiser Guo. Uh, so there's a couple podcasts over there, but a lot of great writing on China. And of course, the best way to follow this podcast, just go over to iTunes, search for China Africa Project. Uh, we'll come up. You can subscribe to the podcast, download it every week. Uh, we're publishing two uh, editions a week now. So we usually do one in the early part of the week on Monday or Tuesday, and then another one on Wednesday or Thursday to carry you through the weekend. So uh, we'd love to hear from you if you, uh, if you, you know, post up on Facebook if you have any questions or comments, or again, put a comment on our podcast page on iTunes. That would really help us and help other people discover the show. So we'll be back again next time with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.